Welcome to the virtual coffee break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. Today is our final episode for the second season of this year's coffee break. We're glad you have joined us so far. We have a cool episode as we are going to try to summarize and get some highlights from all the episodes this season. Joining me today is my colleague, Dairy Extension Educator, Marianne Buza. Welcome, Marianne. Thanks for having me, Martine. It's uh, good to be back on the podcast. I think it was a very rounded, complete season. We did talk about a lot of topics, everything from in-depth on how BLV works inside of the body and a reminder of what beta-hydroxybutyrate was and um, and even just to find out what are the current government programs that are available to farmers right now. So I agree, it was definitely a very well-rounded, interesting season for us. We had a lot of very interesting hosts, researchers, of different universities. We have experts in industry, and of course, we have our own Michigan State University researchers. Absolutely. Let's try to get a little bit bad and think about some of the points that we heard this season. Absolutely. Definitely, Turner Schwartz visited with senior educator Phil Dorst talking about ketosis and not just about the disease, but the impact that the show of that disease during transition can have over the herd. Phil's conversation with Dr. Schwartz was particularly interesting because he addressed the topic of subclinical ketosis, which isn't something that is typically talked about often in the dairy industry. In my opinion, we're mostly looking for clinical ketosis and not really focusing on the subclinical ketosis. You know, I feel like uh, I talk about subclinical mastitis a lot, but not really uh, subclinical ketosis. So it was really interesting to learn about subclinical ketosis and how the beta-hydroxybutyrate can impact the immune system of dairy cattle and how that can lead to other issues throughout their lactation and how it can just basically impair immune function. And it was interesting to see in how they connected some of those incidents of subclinical ketosis to increased mastitis or metritis or other issues where the cow is not prepared to face some of the diseases that can come to her in the middle of a lactation. Then that will lead to decreased production, decreased reproductive performance. So there's more than just the ketosis that happens during that transition period. Absolutely. And also, we learned about how in some cases having a a fever reaction is actually a good thing because having a fever reaction in our cattle really helps stop that bacteria growth. And if a cow is suffering from uh, subclinical ketosis, the BHB is actually stopping the fever reaction. And so that bacteria inside of our system, whether it's mutritis or mastitis or just a regular disease challenge, uh, can really impact how that uh, how our cows are able to to fight any type of infection. A healthy herd is going to be a productive herd. So I'm glad that we have that conversation. Transitioning a little bit, our first international guest for the second season of the Coffee Break was Dr. Michael Steele from the University of Guelph. Calf researcher, known around the world, and he spent time with Dr. Bradford discussing strategies to optimally develop the calves and, and the immune system from those calves. 
Yeah, that was uh, a really interesting discussion. I think one of the main points that uh, Dr. Steele made um, in his conversation with Dr. Bradford was that if you're going to follow an accelerated growth feeding program, uh, where basically the calf can drink as much milk with they, as they want, you really need to make sure that you're weaning at eight weeks or maybe at the very latest, because if you go and you do that six week weaning period, or you start weaning after six weeks, the growth advantage that you have from that accelerated feeding program basically disappears. So Dr. Steele recommends that if you're gonna follow an accelerated growth program, that you need to not only wean later than some of those programs suggest, which some of them do suggest six weeks, so maybe weaning at eight weeks and then doing a step-down program because that's the best way to, to make sure that that calf is gonna not only maintain that growth advantage, but to continue to perform well. A lot of what happens in the calf program is about timing, right? Timing of that first colostrum feeding, time of the initial nutrition, how often does that happen? So to find out that he talked about timing brings back that importance of how determinant is when we do stuff when we're working with calves. Because basically it's literally the future of your farm. It was interesting that he was talking about some of the current research he was doing about leaky guts and the development of the hind gut and not just the rumen of calves. He was talking about... Um, how that they did a that he's currently working on a study where they feed transition milk and like whole milk um, and how that they're seeing that the transition milk really increases the development of the papillae in the in the gut versus the whole milk you see much less development of those papillae in the hind gut so I thought that was really interesting. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of buzz around transition milk for the last year or so. So it's interesting to kind of see how it actually does impact the biology or the, the cellular level of, of a calf. Definitely very interesting stuff that was discussed in that episode. The first thing for this second season, we started to bring some of the other component of dairy farming, which is the economic component of managing a farm and the business side of that operation. So in an intention to try to bring forward some of that discussion, we had John Laporte having a discussion of one of the lenders from Greenstone. They spent some time talking about what's new in the lending world and how to approach those meetings with your lender. You know, Martin, I think that this particular area is an area that a lot of dairy farmers are going to be wondering about. Um, because with the current market conditions, the dairy farmer is having to go to the lender, I think, maybe a little bit more than they would like, depending on their current equity stance. Um, the one thing that I really thought was interesting was that Ben Spitzley said that there are no more shoeboxes. A lender is not going to let you come in with your shoebox of receipts anymore. <laughs> Yes. You're expected to have some type of organized data. And in addition to that, they're really looking to find out what kind of risk management a farm is using. Now, whether they're enrolled in the Dairy Revenue Protection Program or uh, another program like LGM, or even if they're not planning on having any type of risk management programs, they're almost expected to be self-insured 
uh, meaning that they have high equity, so that way there's less risk. Um, I was really interested to hear about Ben's perspective on that. They made a very good picture of what the new lender looks like. The main points that I got from that discussion was, now we have a lot of data that is generated on the farm, as far as production, performance, different indicators. So now the farmer has to be able to use that data to figure out his projections for the market or back up the projections he have based on what the farm has done historically. The other one that you speak a little bit about is about risk management strategies. They are a definitely important component that the lenders are looking for. Lenders need to protect the investment they're doing in your farm. At this point, they're becoming teammates, not just lending you money, but joining your team. They're becoming a part of your farm so they expect that team to do well and be prepared to do well so they are able to help you in that situation. The other important point that he made was how cash flow has become a centerpiece of how your business looks like now. They understand how markets are fluctuating at this point. They understand how projections are fluctuating also, especially in the middle of a pandemic. So understanding how markets are behaving at this point they know that the variation is there, so cash flow is taking a more center point of what's going on and projecting how good of a manager you are and how good is the business doing. One last thing that was interesting was how the story of what you want to do and your passion to do it is still very important to that lender. They need to see that you care. They need to know how involved you are with that business because if you don't believe in your business, there's no way they're going to hop in, in business with you. So that was a thing that struck out to me when he mentioned that. I agree. You know, Martina, what you were talking about as far as them being teammates and showing your passion, I think part of that is definitely having a good business plan when you approach them, but also being excited about your business plan and knowing how your plan's going to work and maybe even having a little bit of a plan B. But yeah, it was really interesting to hear Ben talk about how he wants to be excited to partner with you and he wants to he wants lenders to, to desire to work with your farm. And if your farm is successful, or even if you just have a good plan and you're passionate, those lenders are going to look forward to working with you as a teammate now. And I think that the word teammate is a perfect segue to our next episode, because the next episode was all about teams and how you can build a team to work for you and your farm. So, Martine, for this episode, I had the, the pleasure of visiting something a little bit from my past. Um, I did my master's degree with Dr. Lisa Holden from Penn State, and one of the, the projects that I worked on uh, when I was with Dr. Holden um, was how the dairy advisory teams, or often called the profit teams, in Pennsylvania how successful they are. Not only did I get to participate on about four different teams while I was in Pennsylvania and getting to go to the meetings with different, um, with either uh, Dr. Holden or other extension um, specialists while I was there, but really looking and diving into the data when I was there and these teams, they are very effective. Everybody communicates better if they're on the same page. And if everybody's on the same page, the goals for the farm are going to be 
a lot better. And having the team actually hold you accountable. You know, you can say, oh, I really need to fix this gate. It's a really big bottleneck that's slowing down my flow to and from the parlor. But if you have a team that says in three months, you better have that gate fixed, you're going to have that gate fixed in three months because they're going to be coming back looking to see if you have that gate fixed. And then the other thing that I was really interested in, found interesting when I was working on this project was how as soon as these teams started to develop at the very beginning I was looking at data um, for up to a year before the team the team formed for these dairies and the amount of records they had was very minimal and so once the team started to, to form the thing that I think a lot of farms realized is they didn't have a lot of data to figure out where they were at. And so it really increased what they were recording, whether it be health events, calling, things, the records got more accurate. So I found that to be really helpful because how are you supposed to improve if you don't know where you're at? One of the things that I really like about Dr. Holden's approach to this was she referred to that team as a board of director. Any successful company will have multiple minds to provide input and like you mentioned, ask for accountability from that particular industry. So I believe that having a team of people that are working towards your farm and working together with you, it's a very key factor that you mentioned, because often we know that the vet works on the farm, the nutritionist works at the farm, there's relationships with your bank, there's relationships with agronomist or your breeding company, but how often do they get in the room? How about if the nutritionist tells the agronomist what does he need uh, or what quality he needs from the field in order to feed the cows properly? So everybody is in sync about working towards making the best for your farm. So I think that was kind of the light bulb moment when we say, yeah, their consultants are working with you, but they're never talking to each other as much as they could. And sometimes that could lead to friction. You know, one nutritionist can suggest something and your vet can go crazy about that suggestion. So if they can come together, figure out what the plan is, and then come to the farm with a plan, then it's easier for the farmer to get on board and it's easier for the farmer to comply more, more than anything. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we talked about briefly with Dr. Holden is the economic impact. One thing is that there is a little bit of um, economic input into having this board of directors. Um, some consultants do require you to pay for their time. There is going to be a little bit of an input as far as an investment, but if you stick with the board of directors with these profit teams, you're really going to see a big economic change as they help you work through your bottlenecks and your, your big issues and, and, and improve your farm that way. So it, it is definitely an investment in um, for financial and as well as as your time and the time of your your consultants for sure. Something to think about is it could be an investment. Of course it is an investment, but you're already paying for those consultants. They're working on your farm already and the farmer is the one putting together the team. So since you're going to pay them, how about if they work together and make things easier? <laughs> to comply and easier to move forward with the plan. It's kind of making a better investment if they're already working together so they can be more effective and your investment is more effective. The next guest 
also came from Michigan State University Extension, and it was our forage expert, Dr. Kim Cassida. It was interviewed by our forage educator, Phil Cates. It was very interesting to discuss a new technology that it's been available for a while, but it's finally starting to get some track in Michigan with different producers around the state. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how, as far as from an agronomy standpoint, that this low lignin alfalfa with the HBX technology really allows you to have the ability to either stick to your current um, alfalfa hay schedule and have better quality, or you can have the same quality with the higher yield. So it really seems like it gives you a good alternative um, and some flexibility if you wanted to try this new technology of the low lignin alfalfa. That was kind of the point that I got from that episode. Flexibility is key for many farms. We know that many farms struggle to staff properly or to meet their cutting windows and the schedule. Or if you're doing custom harvesting, you have to submit to the schedule that that company have. So if you have more flexibility to schedule that service, it will be easier for you to improve. If you end up getting the best schedule, as you mentioned, you will increase your quality. If you get a bad schedule or miss your window, then your quality won't be as impactful as expected. And that has been shown in multiple research projects. It was interesting, however, to hear that so far we don't have any feeding trials as far as to understand if that improvement on the field can translate to the room and thus to the tank. Now, we do have plenty of nutritional analysis where we see that that quality has improved. So projections indicate that could definitely improve the performance of your cows by ingesting increasing digestibility of your forage, but that remains to be tested in a feeding trial setting. Yeah, it was interesting to hear how she reported that there was an increase in digestibility and an increase in NDF, but without a cow feeding study, we really don't know. Um, There was also an interesting soil health point that was made about how if you can reduce the numbers of cutting you have to do, you're going to reduce ground compaction and reduce stand damage. So from an agronomic perspective, I believe that there's advantages to to trying this technology from a, a soil health standpoint as well. Definitely. And as they discuss, I think feeding trials will be on the way at some point, especially with the technology, especially to, to catch ground with producers and producers taking a look into it. So I hope we can bring Dr. Cassida back once we know the outcomes of those feeding trials so we can learn about them. Next, I had the pleasure of have Don Mortel. Uh, to talk about feed management, and it's my favorite topic. I really wanted to have done because in feed management, experience plays such a big role about spending time looking at procedures, spending time watching cows enjoy their feed. So I believe Don Mortel, with over 40 years of experience, is really qualified to talk about feed management. So I really wanted to have him over. The main thing that we wanted to bring on that episode is separating what is dairy nutrition versus what is feed management. Because sometimes they can get confused. Many farms expect the nutritionist to be in charge of their feed program, and that cannot be their role all the time. I think, you know, I've had the pleasure of, of speaking to Don or listening to Don speak about feed management over the last few years here in Michigan. Um, And I always learn something new every time I listen to him talk about it. 
you know, it was just really interesting to hear him talk about how, you know, it's really easy to see how your equipment is functioning by just spending some time walking behind the mixer and seeing how the consistency of the feed is or looking to see what's left in the mixer when it's done to see what's being left behind. I mean, I feel like, uh, I think as you mentioned, Martine, these are very simple tasks. It's just, you have to remember to do them. And I think it plays super big of a role because often we treat it as feed cost. We always treat it that is part of it, is part of business. It will always be that. But I think we can do better. Don mentioned that often in the U.S., because feed is so accessible for our cows compared to other places, we haven't yet given the attention that it deserves. Now, with stress economic times that we're having right now, fluctuating market prices, I think producers are starting to realize that there's a lot to be gained if they can give that extra attention to their feed program. Another key part of that episode that I really liked a lot is when we talked about the lack of standardizations that we have on the feed program. In other places throughout the farm, we have standardized protocols. Let's take the portal for example. Milking, we always... Uh, hope that the cow is being milked the exact same way, doesn't matter who's in the pit. However, on the feed program, we see such a, a big variation that every single feeder can feed cows in their own way. What that does is that it generates inconsistencies on the ration that ends up in the bunk, ends up in the rumen, and thus inconsistencies in what's coming out of your bulk tank. You know, I think that your point about having not a lot of... Uh, um, standardization or even a lot of times a missing accurate standard operating procedure. There may be a standard operating procedure, but it may be in a binder in the office and no one's ever looked at it. And it may not have been updated for the last three years. I think that having an SOP, a standard operating procedure, an SOP for how to feed the cows exactly how they should be fed based on that recipe that you're given is very important because unfortunately, you know, you never know what's going to happen. It's harvest season here in Michigan. Unfortunately, there are tragedies. There are horrible things that can happen and there can be accidents. And if you lose the only person that knows the right way to make that recipe and you don't have a written standard operating procedure, your farm could be in trouble and you have no idea how he makes that recipe. You know, it's just one of those things that, you know, you really need to make sure that everybody is doing it the same so it's consistent every single day. Another very important thing that was touched in that episode that not often producers think about is the lack of communication that happens within the feeding team. Often the feeder stays on his lane, pretty much. As long as they don't break anything, managers don't know about him or unless they have to order something. But Don mentioned that not only the feeder is in charge of that program, is who's pushing feed, who's moving cows, who's delivering the feed, who's buying feed, who's receiving it, where is it stored. So there's multiple people that are in touch with that feed that not often communicates together. So that was a very important point that he made. We need to get those involved in the feed program in the same room, on the same page and communicating in order to improve what's coming out of that kitchen and into our bunks. 
Our next episode was management of bovine leukemia virus in dairy herds. Educator Phil Durst interviewed Dr. Kelly Sporer of Central Star. So this topic really talked about some of the research that Dr. Sporer had been doing in Michigan over the last few years on bovine leukemia virus or BLV. And she reported some really interesting facts that I, I think are you know always good to remember and that 89 to 95% of the herds in the United States have at least one infected animal with BLV. And it's estimated that 87% in Michigan are infected. And I think BLV is one of those diseases that are that people are treating it as normal. It's not cool to talk about it. It's not a hot topic anymore, but it's still present. It's still impacting herds, and we still need to talk about it. I absolutely agree. You know, because it does really tear down the immune system of our dairy cattle, it's really hard to know what kind of impact it's having. And I'd say for the most part, BLV is very subclinical. It is. Uh, it's, there's not a lot of very obvious clinical signs of BLV outside of large uh, tumors on the lymph nodes. But, you know, it is a very, it's like that silent disease that slowly impacts your herd and is very quiet about how sick it's making your cows and how it's impacting their immune system. I think that I like from that episode is that they discuss different strategies to approach a problem within your herd about BLV. Yes, they did. They talked about prevention is really your only way to combat this virus. You know, and some of the best ways to do that are, are things that are relatively unpopular in the dairy industry. It's using one sleeve one time because of that microscopic blood that can be transferred from cow A to cow B and using needles only once so you're not passing blood from cow A to cow B. And then the other thing is fly control. Fly control is a very key to controlling BLV on your farm. And that's why I mentioned that we need to talk about this disease because like you mentioned, those practices are not followed in the majority of the farm is through educational programs that we can provide the farm with ideas and data to make those decisions and maybe update those protocols to keep the cow safer and prevent the spreading of BLV across their herd. The other area that it can spread is colostrum. BLV can be spread from dam to calf. Dr. Sporer pointed out that there's an area where a lot of dairy producers might not be thinking about as a place for spread of BLV, and that's at the heifer grower, where you have no idea if the heifer grower is using single-use needles and single-use sleeves, even if you are on your home farm, or your heifers can be commingled with other farms' heifers, which could you know, then be infected by those animals um, with BLV. Exactly. It's about understanding how these diseases transmit it and try to prevent those from happening. Also, they talk a little bit about how to manage that herd once you have a problem inside your herd. Dr. Sporer talked about the options um, that Central Star offers. You know, one of the, the thing is, is that they did a study where they, if they test 40 cows, I believe she said 10 fresh cows in each lactation, first lactation, second lactation, third and fourth plus lactation, um, 
so a total of 40 cows, they can get a very good idea with a high correlation rate to the level of BLV in your herd. Now, whether you have 3,000 cows or 50 cows, they would still test that same cows to get an idea of how much the level of BLV is in your herd. And I really like that because that's a practical solution. It's those solutions that can be applied to a herd. Sometimes we see that disease management is hard because of the amount of testing, the cost of testing, or how impractical are some of those solutions. So the more practical solutions we can provide to farms to manage diseases, if they work, to, if they're practical and work to all herds, then definitely it's an advantage. So one of the things she talked about is how Central Star developed a PCR DNA test that they used blood to identify animals with BLV. And one of the interesting things about that is they can tell how much of the virus is in the blood. So what that means is that some cows might have a higher count of virus within their system than others. And they identified those cows as what they call super shredders. That cow having a higher count of virus will potentially be able to infect more animals within your herd. So definitely identifying those animals with a higher count can help you call and manage the spreading through your herd, thus making it faster and more efficient. One thing that was also discussed is that, so there's the ability to test milk with an ELISA test just from your regular DHIA you know, test, or you can come and get a drop of blood for, to run the PCR test. Definitely the more practical solutions we can give to managers, the easier it's going to be to manage disease in a farm. The next episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing MSU Extension Educator with the Farm Business Management Team, Dr. Corey Clark, and Dr. Bob Milligan, uh, who used to be with Cornell, but is now in Wisconsin and is working with Dairy Strategies, LLC. We had a very timely topic, and that was to talk about the opportunity for leadership during COVID and what that would look like on, on dairy farms. And what kind of impact that would have. And for me, Dr. Milligan was a great addition to this podcast because same as Don Martell, it provided so much experience. And when you're managing people, experience will play a big role. So it was great to hear from him. As Martine mentioned, when we were talking about the feed management, how sometimes the feed manager and, and the rest of the employees that all work around the feed center or with the feed don't always communicate. Dr. Milligan was making very similar points about how being a, it's not just about being a boss, it's about being a leader and making sure that you're communicating with your employees and those employees are communicating with each other. And um, he talked about some great ways to increase your leadership by um, making sure that you're seen and learning to be a good active listener uh, to what your employees are having to say and to really use positive feedback and uh, listen to your employees ideas and ask for their input also be clear and be consistent with your communication dr milligan recommended that you know during this time you can start doing weekly emails with just like checking in with all of your employees also 
Dr. Milligan talked about the use of informal power and informal power is just kind of the ability to influence people in a positive way, kind of, it's almost like being charismatic and being, having natural leadership qualities. What I like is the comparison he made, how instead of a boss, you must become a coach to your team. So for example, in football, Athletes are putting their bodies through a lot. In order for someone to stand in a line of scrimmage and be ready to get a hit from somebody that weighs 280 pounds or more, somebody has to get you there. So coaches need to motivate that athlete to stand on the line and basically receive a hit from a freight train. That's what a coach can do. Get you ready for that moment. So the fact that he's thinking about leaders within the dairy farm as coaches that are getting their team ready to manage cows, their team ready to to milk cows, to work extended hours, to motivate their team even though they're milking for 12 hours. It takes a coach to have that mindset, to have those employees ready to perform at their highest level. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Dr. Corey Clark was able to add some really good insights as far as, you know, that's going to have a lot of financial impact on your farm. If you have a positive work environment, people are going to want to stay and work with you um, on your team rather than leave for an extra 10 cents down the road. But also you're going to be more, you know, if you have a good cohesive team, you're going to have a more consistent dairy and a better work ethic and a, a work, a better, better production. So there would definitely be some uh, financial advantages to stepping up and, and being a coach and being a leader rather than being a boss. Next, I was really glad we had the next following episode on this series because especially within this COVID year with a pandemic working, there has been so many programs developed and available to farmers to manage during this time that it's very easy to get lost in how many options they have available. So it's hard to understand who qualifies, when are the deadlines, what can you use that money for. So I'm very glad that Dr. Adam Kantrovich joined senior educator Stan Moore to talk and discuss about those different programs that are available to farmers. I thought it was very interesting. One of the things that they talked about was the Corona Food Assistance Program, um, which was uh, something you must apply for in order to cover losses in income for certain um, products during the pandemic. But the date for application for that ended on September 15th. Yep, sadly for those that are tuning in now. And then the other one was the PPP, Paycheck Protection Program. Um, this one is also closed for application, but uh, Dr. Kantrovich really recommended uh, that you wait to pay back your loan because there's constantly changing in whether or not there's going to be loan forgiveness and what that's going to look like and what kind of loan forgiveness there is um, and who it's to. Um, so that's something that is also something that you might want to kind of hedge a little bit on. All of this information is available at the MSU Farm Management Team and there's a COVID tab right there. But one of the grants that I do believe is still open, uh, it's, it's Michigan specific. So those producers in Michigan pay attention now. It is a Michigan Ag Safety Grant. 
And there are two different classifications. One is for businesses with less than 10 employees. Then there's grants for um, more than 10 employees. This will help you cover the costs for different things like COVID testing for your employees, extra personal protective equipment, um, whether that be masks, uh, face shields, or any type of facility changes you might need to make, like putting plexiglass barriers somewhere to protect your employees from um, spreading COVID. Um, but that is still open. And I believe um, it's around of $1,000 per employee. So um, that's still an opportunity for uh, Michigan producers to, to look into that grant. And I think one of the key things that I got out of that episode is the importance of being informed. There's a lot of different programs. There's definitely they did not have the time to go deeply into all the options available. So the important thing was always reach out to your FSA office, reach out to your extension office, because there's multiple ways you can get help to manage businesses and stay in touch. Staying in touch with those experts can definitely help you know about dates and who qualifies and all that options that could end up benefiting your, your farm. This would definitely be a good time to have an excellent relationship with your local FSA officer. And uh, so they can help you um, make sure that you are at least aware of the opportunities out there, even if you're not jumping, uh, jumping on board with all of them. Exactly. Information can never hurt. The last podcast this year was Fresh Research on Milk Fever. And it was Dr. Angel Abuelo being interviewed by Terry Educator Paola Basigalupo. And what they talked about was um, interesting because how we talked about subclinical ketosis in one of our earlier podcasts, this one is about subclinical milk fever. Subclinical milk fever is something that I don't often spend a lot of time thinking about because it seems like such a minor issue, but according to some of the new research that's out there, it uh, could be more impactful than I realized. Dr. Abuelo went through some of those impacts. In fact, he does mention some relationships between subclinical milk fever with metritis, with DAs, and with other components that can definitely impact how well can a cow perform in that lactation. In that episode, they discussed two different projects that has reflected a bit more light about how do we manage this disease and what options do we have and more importantly, are we doing the right thing? One thing that I found that was particularly interesting is that the research has shown that blanket prevention use of a calcium bolus supplement um, right after calving is not always a good thing. The research is now showing that um, it can decrease milk and increase the risk of other metabolic issues with it, especially in first lactation animals. Another management practice that they discussed in a different research project was, when are we testing that calcium concentration in that lactation? Is that the right time to do it? Because often we know that once you have a cow that freshens, you go through that close monitoring when you take BHBAs or measure calcium, you take temperatures and you really closely watch that cow. Uh, you measure typically concentration within that day after after freshening, 
they recommended that maybe that one day after calving might not be the best time to get a snapshot to where the calcium concentration is. Because the research they presented showed that sometimes that decreasing calcium concentration can happen later on after first, second, or even third day after calving. I know that Dr. Abuelo mentioned that blood samples can sit in a refrigerator safely up to 14 days. So if you wanted to send your samples to uh, your local veterinarian or to a lab to be analyzed for calcium, maybe you uh, do 20 samples to get an idea of whether or not subclinical milk fever is a current issue on your farm, but you can just take that blood, put it in the fridge, it's good for 14 days, get a couple of samples and send a group off, which I thought was a really good strategy to try and get an idea of whether or not subclinical milk fever is something that you're dealing with on your farm. They did a good job about connecting that to the incidence of other, of other diseases. I really like how that episode used research data to counter or try to update current practices because that's kind of the main role of what we do. It's the main role of research. That's why we always need new data to verify that what we're doing is what's correct or what's recommended. Two practices like blanket treatment of boluses or testing calcium concentration after one day after calving were challenged by new data that suggests that this is not the best approach. I think it was a great discussion. I think it was great to bring some of those highlights that we observed this season, so I appreciate your time, Marianne. I'd like to thank everyone for taking time to listen to our virtual coffee break, the MSU Dairy Team. We really hope that this have increased your knowledge about topics that were discussed in this podcast this season. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can email us at msuedairy at gmail.com, or you can always find us on the web at www.canr.msu.edu backslash dairy. The good news that we have for all of you and all the listeners is that we already agree that a season three will be on the works, that the virtual coffee break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team will be back. So stay tuned to know when we're going to be back online with weekly episodes for the virtual coffee break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. Once again, I would like to thank you, Marianne, for joining me today in the discussion of those highlights and, and that discussion that we had today. Thank you, Martin. For all the listeners, remember that all the past episodes from Season 2 and Season 1 are still going to be available online, so please share if you have enjoyed the material that we have shared uh, with dairy producers uh, through this podcast and this medium. Like we said before, Season 3 will be developed and will be worked on and made published at some point, so stay tuned, and we really hope you will join us then. Thank you.